Okay, is that working? Yes. Oh, way, way to go. It's a good thing I wasn't doing any of those promos this morning, isn't it? Hey? You wouldn't have heard anything. Hey, that was well done. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the time when I used to teach kids' church down in Invercargill. Did it for 26 years. But we were on every Sunday. That's just the way it worked, yeah? So we don't ask you to do it every Sunday. We do it just turn about. It's absolutely great, yeah. You've still got my name, haven't you? Yeah. Hey? I've got to sign up now. <laughs> how much is the, how much, how many lines in the paper? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I want to start. Yeah, Jason, can you just turn that back, one, back screen off, thanks, that's all? Yeah, it's just that I start looking at that instead of looking at this and I get all the wrong messages. Yeah, I want to start by telling you a story from the Bible itself. Way, way back in the Old Testament, there was this person called Elijah. You've heard of Elijah? Most of you will have heard of Elijah if you've been around churches for a wee while. Um, he was that guy who challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel and uh, a standoff and who... When the prophets of Baal called on God to try uh, to send fire down from heaven and light their sacrifices for them, the, all day they cried out to their gods and uh, to the Baal gods, and they never responded because they were dead anyway. But then Elijah, at the end of the day, after pouring water all over his sacrifices and making it almost impossible for those sacrifices to burn, called out to God and fire came down from heaven and consumed them all. You remember that story? That was an awesome thing. That was an adrenaline running, you know, um, adrenaline pumping experience it must have been for Elijah. The story I want to tell you follows on after that because as a result of that, Jezebel, the king's wife, wanted Elijah dead, and he flees. And he takes his servant and he heads away out to the back blocks, and eventually at the edge of the desert, he leaves his servant there and carries on into the desert for a whole day. And he's totally exhausted. And he lies down to sleep, and he's hungry because there's no food in the middle of the desert like that. He's totally worn out, and he just wishes that he could die. Now, it's amazing, isn't it, that happens in life, doesn't it, that you can go from those huge big highs to an experience like that in a matter of days or even hours. And that's what happened to Elijah. And he sleeps there. And then he's woken by an angel who has prepared for him a meal right there in the middle of the desert. And he says, Elijah, get up and have something to eat. The journey's been too much for you. We need to feed you up a bit and give you some strength. And so he gets up and he has a meal and he goes back to sleep again. And then later, the angel wakes him again and gives him another meal because it takes more than one, doesn't it, to revive his energy so that he can continue on again. And he does that. And then the terminology changes, and it's not an angel anymore. It's God speaking to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says how that. 
the whole of their nation had turned to worshipping the Baals. And he was the only one left, he said, who was still worshipping God. God speaks to him and tells him to go up to Mount Horeb. And there he would speak to him. He goes up into the mountain, finds himself a cave, and then three really dramatic events take place. One was a huge wind, a storm that blows through. And the story says, I was going to read it to you out of my Bible, but it doesn't matter. Um, The story says that um, God was not in that storm. The storm passes. Then there's an earthquake, a dramatic earthquake. And we know about earthquakes in New Zealand, don't we? They are dramatic, and we wonder whether God is speaking to us out of those earthquakes. In this case, it says that God was not in that earthquake. And then there was a fire come through. And after the fire comes through, after all of these massive events, Elijah is still there hiding in the cave. And in the quiet, it says, a voice speaks to him. Elijah, what are you doing there? Now, my story today, it's not, about, it's not about depression. It's not about the things that so much that happen in our lives which cause us to get down. We had that last week. John Tucker did a great talk last week didn't it, about where we get to in life and how that God cares about where we are. But our lesson today is about how God reveals himself to us, how he speaks to us, how he wants to be part of of us. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? John 14, verse 21 says, I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Over recent weeks, the last three weeks before we. Um, before John Tucker came last weekend, we spent three weeks on the Trinity, talking about God, the makeup of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so this topic really follows on from that, to talk about how this God who made us, who created the universe, reveals himself to each of us. Scholars, theologians, they divide this subject into two. They talk about general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is about what we can see that convinces us as we look around that there is a God. And special revelation is where God speaks to us very specifically. In nature around us, we can see that God is there. Is that correct? Funny that Claudine should mention those verses this morning about the stars. In Romans 1, 19-20, it says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, 
creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been seen and understood through the things God has made. So they are without excuse. Now God intended that when we look around and we see nature and all the things in nature, that we would see that there was a creator, that there was a designer, because these things can't just happen by themselves. There is a suggestion that they do. But God says that, no, he intended that, um, that he himself would be understood from the things that are made. And he tops it off by saying, they are, people are without excuse. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech. Nor are their words, their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And sometimes if somebody asks me about God, if there is a God, if I believe there is a God, I'll say, go outside on a frosty night in the middle of winter when it's really, really dark and the skies are clear. And don't just look at the stars, but look right out there into the stars and imagine those distances. The fact that those little flickering lights are not just lights. They are planets. They are light years away, some of them. It is so vast, it is so big. And you look at it there and you cannot help but think, I think anyway, you cannot help but see that the earth and the, and the universe is created and held together by somebody, a power greater than anything we can understand. And that's what God intended when we look out into those stars. But when we look at general revelation, it's not just actually the initial revelation, because sometimes... We've got to remind ourselves as we look at beauty and landscapes all around us that what we're actually looking at is not the original creation. It's not, is it? Because the earth has been through a major flood, a major disruption since then. And I remember when I used to live in Wyndham, I used to look out to what we called slope down. And you could see how that the, there was a, there's a huge expanse of land out there that has simply sunk. And mountains have come up. Psalms tells us about the mountains that have come up. And when I sit in my lounge here, I look out at some of these ones out here and I, and I can imagine just looking at them how that the earth has moved. And, and they do, and it does. And it's still moving today, yeah. But some catastrophic event has changed things. This picture here, I've had this on my files for a long time. I was doing a talk to some rally kids I think in the uh, in Invercargill one time years ago, and I've kept these slides ever since. These were in the museum. I don't think you're allowed to take photos in a museum these days, but I don't think there was any restrictions back then. If there was, I didn't know about it, and I've got the photos. Those two oysters were not found at the sea. Those two oysters were found in the lime works at Belfort. Do you know where Belfort is? It's way up in northern Southton, miles away from the sea. What do you think about that one? 
don't know, don't know exactly where that one was found, but that's a rock that's come apart and it's had a fern leaf stuck in the middle of it. How did that get there? Some catastrophic event. These things point to the accuracy and truth of the Bible. When they talk about the things that happened about way back there in Noah's day. Whoops. That one there, those sea urchins, they are also in that Balfour lime quarry. Any of you people ever been to Curio Bay? We used to go to Curio Bay as a family every Christmas for two weeks and camp in amongst the flaxes up in there. It was cool. But when you go down into that petrified forest there, if you have a close look at those um, tree stumps in the rock, how did that get there? Amazing stuff. Years ago, I used to, when I was young, a friend and I were very interested in what we call creation science. There were organisations that used to go around explaining this about this. Christian scientists who talked about a lot about Noah's flood and about the Grand Canyon and all those kind of things. And here we've got it even in our own country, in those lime, in those lime quarries and down in the rocks at Curio Bay. That's just a, uh, that's not the, a real photo of the real thing, but to, just to remind me there, when I was about 30, 35 or so, I remember, there was a Christian scientist, John, um, John Mackay, who came around, and he was part of these uh, Christian science groups, and he took us for a field trip out to a coal mine down at Waituna Lagoon. It was quite soft coal that he had there. The, the mine and the farm that it was on was owned by a man, George Chalmers, who I knew very well personally. And, on the, and he'd opened this mine up and was, was running it and selling the coal. I burnt some of his coal. It was horrible stuff, really, but that's not the point. The point is, in that coal mine, there were all these trees that had got washed into the air, somehow they were all petrified inside that coal. We went and down there and as a group we all wandered around and had a look at all of these amazing things. And one of the things, one of the things that we saw was this huge big tree that was lying on its side with the branches at this end and the roots at this end and the full trunk and it was all there complete there in the coal. And we got a digger over and we dug it out just to have a look at it. Unfortunately, it broke up as they, as they pulled it out because it's been there for years, something like 6,000 years, and it broke apart. But it was fascinating to hear him explain, you know, how, how um, fossils are fossilised there and how it has to be in an instant thing. They were washed there. You could see in the, in the whole coal mine how that everything was washed in there together and then... They were preserved there in the middle of the coal and they've been there ever since. With a little bit of help from my friends, I took the trunk home. I could, we loaded it in the back of my little Cortina station wagon. She was down at the back. It wasn't actually that heavy, it, you know, as you would think about a fresh um, trunk of a tree. It was actually quite light. But I took it home anyway. It was heavy enough in the back of the wagon. 
And then I rolled it out of the wagon and stuck it in my garden and left it there. It became a feature of my garden. And when people came around home, we used to talk about it. So what on earth that? Where did that come from? And I would tell them just... And I, and I would tell them how that George Chalmers, the owner, had actually got some of these things actually um, dated to see how old they were. And they did coincide of the biblical record of the flood. So while you might think that it happened, it only happened away over there by the mountains of Arawet where, where um, Noah's ark eventually landed. It was a worldwide flood and it happened here. And so we see those evidences everywhere that God is real and that his record is real. And so that is what we call um, general, um, general revelation. Acts chapter 17 says this, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is a Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. We can see him all around, can't we? And in many of the nations of the world, who have been isolated down through the generations from maybe the, what we would call the centre of population, the East and all that. And even in New Zealand, that is the case. Indigenous peoples in Australia, Indigenous peoples in New Zealand, our Maori people over in Hawaii, many of them realised that there was a power greater than, the, than what they knew about and they worshipped this creator. They filled in the gaps and somehow worshipped who they thought this person, this spirit would be. But, in, but it came from the fact that in creation they could see that there was such a person. In New Zealand, they called him Atwa, which was God. But then there is special revelation. And, there was, and they are the times when God revealed himself to people Personally, one of those examples is, was, of course, Moses. I had this slide in the last time, my last sermon here, you might remember it. There is uh, the bush burning, obviously just an artist's impression. Moses didn't have his camera with him when he took that photo, when he, when he, when he was there. But, but this was where God revealed himself to Moses there out of that burning bush and spoke to him and, and called him to go and do the work that Moses actually did. And later, in Mount Sinai again, they saw the power of God when fire came down, from, came down and on the top of Mount Sinai, and that was the time that the Ten Commandments were given. There was Jacob. Remember, on, again, one of my earlier sermons, we talked about Jacob and how that he wrestled with a man and... That man twisted his hip and put it out of joint. But as we read through that, we realised that the person that Jacob was wrestling with was God himself. And we call these Christologies, don't we? And Ron, when he spoke there on the first of that series of three, he mentioned Gideon and Joshua at Jericho, and they also are Christologies. That's God revealing himself in a person, as a person, or we could say Christ coming earlier 
before he had actually been born into the world. Yeah. As I was preparing this, I just happened to come across this, this little poem that was in my daily readings this day. And this is what it said. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. I decided I quite like that, so I just stuck that in there for a bonus. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. So again, this is a reference in the beginning of the Gospel of John to, to the Word of God as being the Creator uh, but then in verse 14 it says, And so the word became human and made his name, made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And so here we see now God, the ultimate in, in God's revelations, when his own Son comes to earth and lives among us for something like 33 years. And people realised who he was. John, um, the Apostle Paul gives a summary of it in Philippians 2. He said, though he was God, he did not think equality with God something to cling to, but instead he gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. So this is God revealing himself to us in Human flesh. You know, we often use um, metaphors of talking about insects or one thing and another, where we try to deal with things, but as human beings, we cannot communicate to those things. I had a, a wasp nest in the side of my bus one day. I, went, I was painting it, and I took the vent off the side of the bus, and next thing I've got all of these... Wasps crawling all over my hands. That's not too good, you know. How do you tell a wasp, tell wasps to go and take their hives somewhere else? You can't, can you? You can't. But in this case, um, yeah, I dealt with them. I gave them a dose of, of white powder. But God comes to earth, taking on himself the form of a human being so that he can live with us, communicate with us, Tell us the dangers that we are in and lead us to himself. That's the ultimate in Revelation. Matthew 28, the disciples were amazed. Who was this man? They asked, even the winds and waves obey him. That comes from the story where the disciples are out in a boat one day and there's a huge big storm and they're in danger, obviously from the waves and from sinking and from the breaking up from the wind. And they wake up, Jesus is asleep, not concerned at all in the back of the boat. And he says, speaks out to the winds and the waves, and then everything comes calm. And the thing for them was, the amazement for them was, in fact, in some translations it says they feared. You know, they were afraid of the storm a moment ago, but now they are afraid because they are saying, who is this that we've got in the boat with us? 
He can speak to the winds and the waves and they obey him. And so they realised that the one who was here, Jesus, was more than just a mere man. God revealing himself to us in the form of Jesus. John said, in the first of his epistles, we saw him with our eyes, we looked at him, we touched him. He says, we knew who he was. We were convinced of who he was. At the end of Jesus' life, there is the crucifixion. And the disciples, who really thought that they had it all sorted in their minds, were devastated when Jesus went to the cross and died. He had told them of the purpose of his coming, but they hadn't really understood. The disciples were all together, all except Thomas, on this particular day, just after the resurrection. And they saw Jesus, and they went out afterwards and told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, but Thomas is totally broken by what has happened. He was convinced who Jesus was. Now he's not convinced at all. He's left them. He's gone away. I think the fact that he was not there is probably a story in itself. And this verse, John 20, eight days later the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas is with them. The doors were locked. And suddenly, just like the last time, Jesus was standing among them and he says, Peace be to you. And then he turns to Thomas. Now this conversation between Thomas and the disciples did not happen when Jesus was standing there listening. All right? He had said, unless I see him myself, unless I can put my fingers into those wounds in his fingers, unless I can put my hand into his side, there's no way that I'm going to believe Jesus turns to Thomas and says, put your finger here. Jesus knows about that conversation, even though he was not there. Look at my hands. Put, me, put your hand into the wound by my side and don't be faithless. Only believe. But there's a verse that comes in after that that I want us to focus in on this. Thomas was convinced by that, obviously. But Jesus said to him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without having seen me. So who's that talking about? Who are you talking about? Who's that? He's talking about us. Okay, if he's talking about us, we are those people who have not seen and yet have believed. So if there is to be another form of revelation that would bring the message to us, then what would that be? The Bible. How do we keep that story alive? What happened there at the cross 2,000 years ago? It's such an amazing story. It is the gospel story. But how do you keep a story like that alive down through the generations? A lot of, the ancient, lot of our, uh, our peoples in the world uh, lived a lot with storytelling. Storytelling was very much about part, was very much part of their culture. The uh, Aboriginals were great at telling stories. They used to sit around the fireplaces and tell each other stories to keep their history alive. Our people did it in carvings. But uh, 
it's not just those people. There was, you know, down through the years, even the Israelites, they used to tell the stories of their escape from Egypt to their generations year after year. The Passover was for that, so they could tell the stories to keep the stories alive. We have to keep the stories alive. And this is how it happens for us. The Bible is a form of revelation. God caused, God inspired people to write down those stories. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And those were the stories of, of Jesus and of the crucifixion. They were all there in the Gospels. And there are the stories about the Gospel going out in Acts. But even prior to that, there was the law way, way back. And there was the stories being kept alive. Do you remember Amy Grant? Some of you older people like me. Yeah, there was others that used to sing this song as well. There's dust on Mother's Old Bible. It's worn, it covers worn with the age and though it's old and wrinkled, Mama's there on every page. The night the angels called her, Mama called me to her side and handed me her Bible and said, Son, let God be your guide. Now to be fair, I'm not concerned if there is dust on your mother's Bible. I've got my mama's Bible at home and my dad's Bible at home. Mum's Bible has been sitting on my shelf for 20 years and my dad's probably about 20, 33 years and there's probably a good deal of dust on those Bibles. But it's the dust on your own. And if the Bible you're using is your mummy's Bible, well, is there dust on that? Because this is how God wants to reveal himself to us. One of the ways, the main way, that God wants to reveal himself to us. There's a story back, back in the Old Testament about a man called Josiah. The Israelites had lost their way at one point. They had turned and started worshipping other gods again, just like in the time of, of um, Elijah. And for 70 years, the sacrifices in the temple had stopped and there was no worship of God and there was no understanding of God at all. And then this young man, the youngest king in all of the line-up, the history of Israel, came to the throne. He was only eight years old. Through circumstances, he became king when he was only eight years old. When he was about 23, 24 years old, he has um, asked the people to clean up the temple and tidy it up because the whole thing, had, the sacrifices had stopped, the whole thing was just a great big mess. And they were cleaning it up. And they found, as they were cleaning it up, the Old Testament scrolls of the law. And when they found them, they told Josiah that they'd found them. And so he asked them to read them to them and to him, and he read them to him. And when he read them and he realised the way that they had been living, 
the way that the people had just completely gone off in the wrong direction, the way that they were worshipping healing gods and who God was, who God really was. And God was revealing himself to them right now through that finding of that scroll. And when he heard it, he tore his clothes. I was going to tear my shirt. That would make me have to go and buy another one. I think I can probably get the message across without quite tearing my shirt. But imagine somebody tearing their clothes in front of you. How confronting that would be. That's what they used to do when something like this happened that really cut them to the heart. They would do that. They tore his clothes. And then he called all the leaders of Israel together and turned them back to the ways of God. Jesus said, I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Now that we know these things, God will bless us if we do them. Going back to the story of Elijah again. Elijah said to God when, God, when God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He thought that he was the only one left worshipping God in the whole of the land. God made him realise that he wasn't. There was 7,000 other people who were hidden around the country who were still believers in the true God. And he told Elijah to go back. And sometimes we need to be told to go back too. But the message I want to leave with you today is that the revelation that came to Elijah came not in those dramatic events of the storms, of the fires and of the earthquakes, but in that still quiet voice. Do we take that time to read our Bibles, to sit down alone and want just to hear from God as we read? You might say, I don't use a paper Bible, I use it on my phone. Well, that's, that's okay too, because I do the same. But it's good to go back to our actual paper Bible too and... Um, and see where these things are in our Bible. But the important thing is, is the sitting down with God quietly and reading and praying and wanting to hear from God. Because God said, I will love them and I will reveal myself to each of them. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do. He wants us to know who he is. And in that still, quiet places, he reveals himself to every one of us.